Thank you, Becky, so much indeed. And uh, thank you, everyone, for the opportunity to be with you today. So I've got the title this morning of Resolving Conflicts. I don't know about you, but I don't really like conflict very much. I'm quite a gentle person. I thrive in an atmosphere of uh, calm and of purposeful movement towards a common goal. So um, sadly, life is not always like that, and conflict abounds. Um, so I was slightly amused by the suggestion that 10% uh, of conflicts are due to a difference of opinion, 90% of conflicts are due to a tone of voice. I don't think that's absolutely true. Sometimes the way that we speak can indeed spark a conflict, but more often than not, uh, there is something substantial underneath the surface that causes a real conflict that's difficult and hard to resolve. We're of course living at the moment in a time of global conflict, aren't we? And, and we're hugely concerned by what is happening across the world, uh, not only in the huge and needless destruction of that wonderful country of Ukraine as a result of Russian aggression, but also the many differences of opinion on how that situation might be uh, resolved, how different nations might respond to it, the different expectations. There's a lot of tension, there's a lot of difference of opinion. Today, of course, is Mothering Sunday. And uh, Mothering Sunday, uh, at least in its more contemporary form of focusing on motherhood and families, is a delightful time. It's so lovely to recognize the contribution of motherhood in life. Uh, and this is a great day. But sadly, not all families are comfortable places. And sadly, there are times when uh, when life at home is marred with conflict and sometimes that pain runs very deep. So it's a relevant topic, isn't it? Resolving conflicts, whether we think of the world, whether we think of relationships in home and family life, whether we think of church. It's not the topic I chose for today, but it sits within your series on the Book of Acts. So I've taken note of what was said really as the benchmark for this whole series, uh, that it is your desire at this time to rediscover and to rebuild a true sense of church that is fit for a postmodern, post-Christendom, post-Covid, post-disagreement, post-disruption era by immersing yourselves in the book of Acts. So we've certainly done that this morning in that we are immersing ourselves in quite a substantial section of the book of Acts to try and understand something about resolving conflicts. So let me try and briefly speak into your series using this passage that Toby read so wonderfully earlier. There are two conflicts that are within this passage. Two disagreements. The first one was the disagreement over the question, should Gentiles be circumcised? Now, in the New Testament, there were many different cultures and groups of people, just as there are today. But often, uh, the complexity of society was kind of narrowed down to two groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were the people whose story is told in the Old Testament, and Jesus, of course, was himself born of the line of David with a Jewish tradition. 
And the word Gentile simply means nation, so it means all the other nations, or it was widely understood to mean all of those nations apart from Jews. They were all lumped together as Gentiles. Now, some years before this incident in Acts 15, there was evidence of Gentiles becoming believers. To some extent, the ministry of Jesus went beyond Judaism into the Gentile world. But certainly in the book of Acts, the story of Cornelius in Caesarea, and then many Gentile believers in Antioch, and the result of Paul's travels elsewhere meant that there were vast numbers of Gentiles who were becoming Christians. But the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, which, if you like, was something of a headquarters for Christianity, they were mainly Christians from Jewish background. Some of them assumed that the Gentile believers would have automatically been circumcised. After all, Christianity grew out of Judaism. So if other Christians, if other people rather, became Christians, they should surely take on the marks of being uh, part of the Jewish community, particularly through the act of circumcision. They were quite horrified that some new believers were being baptized as Christians without circumcision. So the question is, does salvation extend on an equal basis to the Gentiles? Do they need circumcision? A group of Jewish believers had gone to Antioch and claimed that the Gentile believers there had to be circumcised. They weren't opposed to the Gentiles becoming Christians, but they believed that they almost needed to become Jews first. They needed to have the mark of Judaism upon them. And there was a heated argument in Antioch. They never resolved it there. So they decided to send all the leaders back to Jerusalem to have a proper council to try and resolve this issue. That's what we read about. This was our first dispute. And there were one or two key moments in that council meeting. Verse 10, why then do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? You see, the Jews never carried the full requirements of the law. Indeed, that's why Jesus came. That's why there was a gospel of grace. No, we read, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. We all depend equally on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. None of us deserve the blessings of our new life in Jesus. It's all of God's grace. So why require something else from those who are being converted among the Gentiles? And then after the argument, there was some evidence of testimony. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they gave the evidence of the Gentiles who'd become Christians, who'd received the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of that conversion and the transformation in people's lives. And there was a link back to the words of the prophets. And then there was a message from James, something of a compromise that he was proposing, saying that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't add to them a burden that is not necessary. But then he did ask that there should be some 
abstentions that the Gentile believers should hold back from eating food that had been offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. I'm not going to go into all the details of all of that. But the reason for those kind of things was not because any steps are necessary for the Gentiles to be saved, but rather out of respect for those who are believers of Jewish background. And so it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to the gathering at Jerusalem that this is how the dispute would be resolved. That's the first conflict in our passage. It would be nice to think, wouldn't it, that then the story goes on to some happier moments. Oh no. Straight out of that one and we're into another one. Should John Mark join Paul and Barnabas on the next stage of their travels? Barnabas said yes, Paul said no. There was a sharp disagreement. This is a completely different story. This is about John Mark who had accompanied Paul and Barnabas. But there's a little passing phrase a few chapters earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts 13 and verse 13, that there was a point on their travels when John Mark returned back to Jerusalem. It's almost mentioned just incidentally, no consequence of it. But clearly for the Apostle Paul, it was a serious moment. In his mind, that was a moment of desertion by John Mark. And so then this scenario came up, and there was a sharp decision between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas wanting to keep John Mark on board. Paul not being prepared to do so. The whole thing was actually resolved some years later. In the book of Philemon, we find the Apostle Paul writing to Philemon, referring to Mark as a fellow worker. It seems as if they had finally come together. But that was years later. Years later. At this point, the conflict was unresolved. Barnabas took Mark, and they went off in one direction. Paul went off in another direction. What a, what a sending service. You know, sending service is supposed to be great times. And here was a church sending one of its leaders one way and one the other way because they wouldn't agree on who they should take with them. So there we have two substantial conflicts. I wonder what does all this say to us today? I'm sure many of you have come across conflict resolution. You might have come across it in your work. You might have come across it in uh, context like uh, understanding relationships, marriage enrichment, these kind of occasions where conflict resolution plans are explored. The things that you can do to work well when there are disagreements in business or in relationships or in life as a whole, some of you might have come across conflict resolution diagrams where you, know, you have your vertical journey where you're addressing the task and the horizontal journey where you're addressing the relationship and how the two speak to each other. Uh, and a lot of people give a lot of time and care into this kind of stuff. All of which is entirely helpful and relevant. But what is God saying to us especially from this particular story in the book of Acts about these conflicts in the early church? It would seem to me that there are just four fundamental messages 
that we need to take away from this. And I'm sorry that they don't all start with the same letter. Uh, they're not the easiest thing to remember, but here they are. The first is about the centrality and sufficiency of the gospel. One thing in church life is primary, only one, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're helpless, we're hopeless, but Christ has died for us, and through Jesus we're raised to life and brought into a new life and brought into the family of God. And we look forward to the time when Jesus returns in power and glory. The gospel is central and the gospel is sufficient. Don't try and add to it. True repentance and faith will lead to a new way of life. That way of life may not look exactly the same for every person. It may not look exactly the same in every part of the world. Don't try and impose a particular kind of, if you like, white Western way of understanding the Bible or of Christian lifestyle and impose it on everyone. Let the Holy Spirit allow a new life to emerge through believing in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel which is central. It's the gospel which is sufficient. Indeed, the Apostle Paul writes in the beginning of Romans 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for the transformation, for the salvation of all who believe, Jews and Gentiles alike. The centrality, the sufficiency of the gospel, that is where we start in church life, and that's where we start when we're addressing any particular conflict situation. Then number two is humility and sensitivity in debate. This business about circumcision in the New Testament, when they first talked about it at Antioch, they didn't resolve it. It was an aggressive conflict, totally unresolved. So they sent people back to Jerusalem to have another go. In Jerusalem, they did a bit better. Why did they do better in Jerusalem? Because they listened to each other more carefully. They heard what the Spirit is doing in other people's lives. They allowed the testimony of others to challenge their own thinking. There was a spirit of humility that the most experienced of Christian leaders may not have fully understood everything that God was doing at that time. We need to approach conflict with humility. We need to learn how to listen, and listen especially to the voices that are different from our own. I was particularly grateful, fairly recently, of exploring a little more deeply the work of Emmanuel Lati, who's a Ghanaian theologian, who for a while was in Birmingham, now in the United States, who argues very strongly for the need to listen to all voices in every conversation especially the voices of different cultures, different parts of the world, different lifestyles, listening with humility, listening with sensitivity. Where is the work of the Holy Spirit in this person's life? What is God doing? And if that seems to be different to what I'm thinking, then why? And where do we go from there? Listening with humility and sensitivity. So the first point is the centrality 
and sufficiency of the gospel. And the second is humility and sensitivity in debate. The third is something about the community together, about consideration of others in that community. Because the Jerusalem conference did feel a little bit messy. Why couldn't they have just left it that circumcision was not necessary? End of story. Why did they have to introduce these compromises that the Gentiles shouldn't do a few things, which Jews didn't do anyway? Why did they need to bring that in? There seemed to be a pastoral motivation about it. It seemed to be something about some concessions out of consideration for others in the community. But at what point do those concessions get in the way of the freedom and the sufficiency of the gospel? That's where it can get a little bit tricky. Somehow in Jerusalem, they managed to hold that balance. That the gospel is entirely God's gift of grace and nothing else is needed except that you and I declare that we have sinned, we have failed, we are trusting in Christ, he alone will forgive us and bring new life to us. That is the gospel. Nothing to add to that. But we are a community, and we need to listen to one another. And in that listening, we need to be mindful of each other. And maybe at times, there are things that we need to do out of respect. For others. For me, gospel freedoms always come first. Pastoral concessions take secondary place. I want to be mindful of how a Christian brother or sister might feel. But my primary responsibility is to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is all sufficient. And it's God who changes lives, not rules in the church that change. So an awareness of the community is important in all of this. And the final application is the difficulty of discernment and reconciliation. We're not talking about something easy here. It took years for Paul to regain confidence in John Mark. Something had affected them deeply. Even the seemingly all-confident, all-capable Apostle Paul was deeply hurt when John Mark upped and away and went back to Jerusalem. We're fragile people, and we can be easily hurt. And reconciliation may not come easily. It takes time. But it can come when we work through everything else, step by step. So that's what it seems to me that these two stories of conflict are saying to us. First, that the gospel is all-sufficient and that it comes first. Then that we need to listen to one another in a spirit of humility and sensitivity. Then we need to have consideration for those around us within the community. And also that we acknowledge the difficulty of discernment and reconciliation. How's that worked out in my life and in my ministry? 
And I guess that if I had time, I could tell you many stories of working through conflict. I haven't really got time to do any of them, but maybe I'll just touch on, on one very briefly. It was a challenging time uh, when I was minister in North London. And someone came to be baptized who was uh, um, from a Muslim background. She was living independently from her parents, recently graduated, and was enthusiastic, so enthusiastic about her faith and determined to be baptized. But her parents were deeply devout Muslims. Her father was quite a Muslim leader, very, very uh, sharp and, and very discerning in many ways. And there was a potential here that the whole family could collapse and that uh, the daughter would be completely marginalized, disowned by her parents. She wasn't living there at the time, but family was important to her. So she asked me to have a chat with her dad. The night before she was baptized. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had quite such an intense, complex conversation. I recall it so vividly. And of course we talked about how Muslims understand Jesus, how Christians understand Jesus. We talked about the gospel, which of course was known to him. He was very knowledgeable in these things. We talked about baptism and what it meant. Oh dear, that doesn't go down very well. Especially baptism by immersion and death and resurrection, all these sort of things. We talked about family. Was the baptism going to happen the next day? His daughter was determined. There was a tense scene outside the house before she came to be baptized. But once in the church, the atmosphere was really peaceful. We scrapped most of the service, we just sung a hymn or two. She shared her testimony and she was baptized. It was one of the most profound moments I have experienced as a minister. Was the conflict resolved? Well, I'm thankful to say that the last time I had any communication with her, she was saying with delight that she is in good terms with her parents, who are now quite elderly. And finally, it was, after many years. There are conflicts which run very deep and which can be very painful. But never give up on God's grace and on the power of the Holy Spirit to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. And of course, the greatest reconciliation of all time was when God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We'll come and share that in a moment in communion.
but I think we're going to sing something first of all.